StartCast is a podcast created by Start International, a non-governmental organization that has worked to create new connections and strengthen opportunities for advancing sustainability science across Africa and Asia for more than 25 years. The StartCast is one way we endeavor to bring informative, approachable, and free content to early and mid-career scientists working on issues of global sustainability. For season two, we're focusing on the Future Resilience for African Cities and Lands Project, part of the broader Future Climate for Africa initiative. Over the next few weeks, we'll be talking with an array of insightful people involved with Fractal to learn more about their experiences, paying particular attention to the transdisciplinary approaches used in the project, what these look like in practice, and why transdisciplinarity is so important for achieving desired impacts in African cities. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only and do not necessarily represent the views of Start International, officially or unofficially. Hello, and welcome back to season two of the Startcast. I'm Alice McClure, and I'm your host for episode two. We're continuing to focus on the transdisciplinary research project in Southern Africa that Nzime introduced you to in episode one, namely the Future Resilience of African Cities and Lands Project, or Fractal for short. It began in 2015, setting out to examine how decision makers in nine cities across Southern Africa can access and use robust climate information to help them make effective planning decisions. I work as a researcher and coordinator in this project. So Nzime spoke in episode one about how urban areas in Africa are experiencing rapid population growth, and there's increasing pressure on governments to provide for city residents' basic needs. This includes food, water, housing, electricity, and access to jobs. The effects of climate change are expected to add extra stresses. All of these pressures have placed a lot of responsibility onto the shoulders of decision makers, especially those in local governments, to first understand the climate risks involved, to couple that with an understanding of the socioeconomic changes that are happening, and then to make informed planning choices for the future of their cities. So in episode one, we spoke with the climate scientists who were involved in Fractal. They discussed the concept of climate information distillation and how they co-produced climate risk narratives as a way to develop usable climate information for decision makers in these cities. Today, we're going to explore one of the novel approaches that helped the climate scientists to do this, the learning lab. The Fractal team has applied a transdisciplinary lens to their work from the very start of the project, and this involves different types of researchers, societal stakeholders, and others coming together to collaboratively frame relevant issues and respond to these, in this case of climate resilience in southern African cities. So the research team adopted a transparent, open, and iterative approach, and key among their approaches was the learning lab, which were held in the cities and are the topic of conversation today. A process like this is not straightforward, but it did build trust amongst and between stakeholders. The labs provided an enabling space where stakeholders could co-define each city's unique issues, co-explore climate change risks, and co-identify opportunities for resilience. So to help us unpack these ideas and to give us some concrete examples of where the learning labs were effective, I'm joined by several members of the Fractal Research team today. First, we have Sakena Bawani. Sakena is an interdisciplinary senior researcher at the Stockholm Environment Institute, or SEI. She has a background in both social anthropology and computer science, so she is well equipped with a range of qualitative and quantitative skills. She co-leads SEI's Climate Services Initiative, as well as coordinating the strategic and technical development of the We Adapt Global Platform and Network for Climate Change Adaptation. It's really great to have you with us today, Sakena. So alongside Sakena, we have Anna. Anna is a researcher at the University of Cape Town. 
Her research addresses questions of climate adaptation in cities, particularly developing a process-based understanding of how urban climate adaptation happens, is organized and governed in these spaces. Really wonderful to have you with us today. Thanks, Anna. And finally, we have Gilbert Siama, a researcher at the University of Zambia, where he leads the Center for Urban Research. He was integrally involved in the design of the transdisciplinary processes in Lusaka and across Fractal more generally. As Fractal progressed, Gilbert was key in designing and facilitating transdisciplinary learning events, including a mega learning lab, which involved a blended approach of face-to-face -face and virtual participation. So welcome to you all. It's great to be chatting with you today. So I'm gonna dive into some of the background of the labs. And to do this, I'm gonna go first to Anna. Anna, you've been involved in several of the learning lab approaches, but you've also got a bit of a history in terms of learning labs. So maybe you can give us some background to this approach. Where did it come from? And why was a lab approach particularly productive for this type of work in Fractal? Hi, Alice. Yeah, thanks. I think really there were two sources to the idea. Partly at the University of Cape Town, um, one of the partners that was involved in the kind of conceptualization of Fractal was the African Center for Cities. And there, there had already been a number of years of experience of implementing what they called city labs, mainly in Cape Town. And the lineage of that very much comes out of the sort of um, urban planning literature, particularly around collaboration and participation in urban planning processes and about how academia and local government can work more effectively with citizens and the private sector to really experiment and incubate new ideas for how to grow particularly more sustainable, but also more inclusive cities. And so there are a whole range of sort of lab ideas from design labs, urban living labs, um, as I say, city labs, learning labs, I think there's kind of a lineage of this idea of running labs in cities um, that, that ACC had been experimenting with in Cape Town, and that experience fed into designing um, the Fractal project. But then also another of our Fractal partners, the Red Cross Red Crescent Climate Centre, also have a track record in kind of action research and multi-stakeholder participation around understanding and planning with climate risks and so they brought their expertise into the design process as well and so I think there was sort of a mutual appreciation for the value of the learning lab idea as creating a space for addressing complex problems in cities where climate variability, climate change, climate risks is very much one of those complex problems facing cities and a recognition that by bringing stakeholders from government, the public sector, academia, civil society, and the private sector together, it is one way of tackling these problems from different perspectives, bringing different knowledge together to, yeah, to innovate, to try and break down some of the silos that sometimes perpetuate those problems. So I think that's why in a project like Fractal, where it was, you know, the focus was on building climate resilience in cities, the idea of a lab approach, um, bringing multiple stakeholders and, and perspectives together in kind of an intense shared space and set of experiences to try and encourage sort of creativity and joint problem solving made a lot of sense. Thanks, Anna. 
So I'm going to head over to the Learning Lab experiences in the cities themselves. And Gilbert, you were very involved in the Fractal Learning Lab process in Lusaka, Zambia, where there were five learning labs in the end. I think I was lucky enough to attend two or three of those. And then he went on to help develop this approach in other cities, particularly over the last couple of years. So what do you think a typical learning lab consists of? What are the ingredients of the learning lab that make it an effective approach? Great. I build on Anna's last comments. Cities experience very complex uh, challenges that no one single authority can address just by themselves. And so in the era of climate change, it is essential that we find methods and ways to bridge various forms of knowledge and experiences so that we can begin to innovate together in the cities and then begin to find solutions uh, to address those complex challenges. The complex issues are even made worse when we add uh, the climate change layer. And so what the Learning Lab did, particularly if I'm to reflect on Lusaka and then reflect on the wider uh, practices uh, that we did in, in Fractal, is for, for us to begin to break the barriers of working in silos, working in isolation, which is very typical in many parts of, uh, of the world and worse in places like Zambia, uh, we needed to have a flexible dynamic pacing that cuts across one discipline. If we talk of water, for example, getting water flowing, addressing water insecurity, whether it's too much water or too little water, requires people to work across disciplines. And that question in itself brought people together, brought people from the energy company, Zescot, brought people from the Osaka water, brought people from law government, brought people from the communities that are flood than the engulfing significant climate-related challenges like, like the Bohol time. So we need a, a dynamic, flexible question that resonates with the interests, various interests in the city. Then the second part uh, that allowed us to sort of succeed in our, in our work is that um, you need a very uh, diverse audience. No one is going to solve the water problem. We need a diverse audience. So in selecting who comes to lab, we need to know what is this challenge like and who has what experience. And so it's not about water engineers, it's not about climate scientists, it's not about urban planners, it's about harnessing the diverse knowledge in the city to innovate together. The second part is that you need a very carefully uh, thought through and carefully selected venue so that people feel at home, people feel flexible, people feel free to express themselves. And on top of that, we had to, deploy a very careful uh, uh, facilitation process. You know, a process that is aware of the internal dynamics amongst these institutions. First of all, they haven't been working together for a long time. And now they need to work together. And to facilitate that type of process so that people can truly work together, truly work together, genuinely so. Genuinely think that somebody in Zesco, somebody in the water company, somebody in the energy company, somebody in the community, they have something to offer on the table. And you can harness and you can benefit from that process. To get those processes genuinely facilitated, somebody needs to be aware of the power dynamics in the room. Somebody needs to be aware of the different interests in the room. And somebody needs to be aware of the social relations that shape our human experiences every day. You need to succeed. You need to be aware of, of, of the competing challenges that these institutions are. Facing. Some of them have no, you know, no equipment. Others have no finance to address some of these problems. So even as we innovate, 
as we are innovating in our labs, we are sort of engaging with what we can call something very pragmatic. What is that we can do now in the medium term and in the longer term? So it's not a space for wishlisting. It's a space for innovating together in real practical terms. And it's a space for us to set commitments that make us committed as a diverse uh, group of people and institutions to think and act and address uh, climate change issues. So that is uh, what I see as a typical setup of the lab, and that's how we're able to run through it at city level. Thanks, Gilbert. So you've touched on something that I'm finding increasingly interesting, and I think other people too, when they're reading around the literature of learning labs and transdisciplinary research and collaborative research, is this issue of power and power dynamics. So I was wondering if you or others that we're talking to today have any experiences or ideas, what was it about sort of dealing with these power dynamics? Was it that they were surfaced and then people would sort of tackle them head on? Or was it just being sensitive to the power dynamics? Was it, you know, in the learning lab, was there some way of trying to change those power dynamics in any way? Or was it just, as I said, kind of surfacing them and working with them in a different way when it came to the learning labs? Yes, um, in Fracto, it was a bit of both. Uh, there was a constant sense of awareness uh, that there are power dynamics and the design of the labs took care of that. And when we talk of that, well, power dynamics in this case, I'm talking of, let's say, uh, the climate sciences, how they just lay back to allow other uh, sciences to get the front seat. And later on, they said, wow, uh, great. This is now the climate stuff that we need to add on, like the climate risk narratives. We had been dealing with the governance literature and governance material previously. So um, that was the, a constant level of awareness amongst all of us, in a way. The facilitation itself, people were away. The other part which sort of surfaced, and I think that was in the fourth lane lab in Lusaka, is when one of the participants who passionately spoke about the need to get the youth in the participation process with a stronger voice. And that was something projecting a need to get less young people speak because we are talking of 40, 50, 60 years kind of impacts at some level. Uh, and these are the people who are going to be older at that age. So, so that was like an assertive way of getting, uh, being a little bit more aware of power-related issues. And then that came up so well when we did the climate caucus and we had to give a big space to the young people to explain to us what climate change means to them and how they think we should actually begin to act as a collective. That was sort of a mix of both. Thanks, Gilbert. So what I'm hearing is that there was sort of a recognition of people who maybe don't have voices in this kind of conversation and bringing those voices into this conversation much more explicitly. And you referred to the Urban Caucus, uh, just to mention this is a very large event that we held at the end of Fractal. And Gilbert was in the driving seat to design this and bring together stakeholders from across the region. But I think, Anna, you, you might have something to add to this comment on power dynamics. Over to you. Mm, thanks. Yeah, just to add to what Gilbert was saying, one of the very conscious sort of design components of the labs is to draw people kind of out of what we call their home spaces or their comfort zone. So often power is exercise through people playing particular roles and kind of particularly within their home turf, if that makes sense. And so part of the ethos of the learning labs in Fractal and the idea of it in general 
is that you create a sort of a space in which nobody is in their home space, which is often where they draw their power from. So by, um, I mean, physically, by taking people out of their sort of office spaces, institutional spaces into a, a neutral shared space, starts to do that. But then it's also about um, including exercises in the days that people are involved in the labs that really try and kind of break down the hierarchies and encourage people to make it personal rather than enacting a role, which is often the sort of where the institutional hierarchies of power come from, is to make everybody bring themselves into the conversation in thinking about the problems and the possible solutions and innovations together. And so, for example, playing games where people are encouraged to, yeah, to strip away some of the formalities of their professional roles and, and really almost have a bit of fun together, which makes it a much more personal experience. And those are some of the ways that, you know, the, the power differentials never entirely go away, but you can park them a little bit when you get everybody on a more level playing field and kind of coming at these problems from more creative um, positions, bringing their whole selves as opposed to them playing their professional roles, so to speak. Thanks, Anna and Gilbert. I think that's added some good examples to how these power dynamics were thought about and potentially addressed slightly as Anna said that these power dynamics the dynamics never really go away they're never really addressed completely but just being aware of them is important but I can also imagine that it's quite hard to do this in different places because everybody lives in a very formal world in the spaces of governance and research etc but and so maybe we can park that idea in the back of our minds while I ask Sukena about her experience in Lusaka and in other places. So it sounds like the Learning Lab approach worked really well in Lusaka, Sukena. And I know you were part of several of these labs. But Fractal also worked across nine cities. So do you feel like the approach went well in all of those cities? Or do you think that it was particularly effective in some places? And maybe you can give us some concrete examples of this. Thanks, Alice. Um, yes, I think what Gilbert and Anna have alluded to is what made the Learning Labs pretty successful, I would say, in all the nine cities that we worked in, mainly because it was this context-driven process. And we had many tools in our toolkit to apply, which would allow us to sort of unpack and surface the learning issues in each city so even though they could have been quite different I mean in most places the burning issues were around water security and water system planning but how those dynamics really needed to surface for, the, for each particular city which actors were involved could be a really emergent and iterative process because we had um, as Anna just mentioned a very sort of fun and interactive and quite sort of innovative way of engaging actors across the science society interface. And I think the special thing about Fractal and its participants was that everyone was quite willing to step back and step out of their comfort zones and were also quite self-aware about 
how they might influence the conversation. So as Gilbert said, the climate scientists in Fractal were very aware of stepping back and letting the issues emerge and seeing how Fractal could sort of support decision-making processes rather than sort of preempting that with the climate science. I mean, some of the interesting things around in the cities in terms of different approaches were the methodological approaches to looking at the burning issues. So, for example, in Lusaka, we began looking at the local issues of water security, but very soon realized that the complexity of the situation demanded that we take a more regional approach. And so there, a combination of experts were involved, including engineers and water modelers and climate scientists, as well as people really looking at the governance issues. And together, um, there was very much an iterative approach of looking at the wider complex system of water security and water demand and water use and supply and how that could be approached. And that, that surfaced really interesting knowledge from the different participants, which could then be sort of integrated into a more innovative solution that wouldn't have been possible if we'd just been talking in our silos or to individual experts. Thanks, Akena. That helps a lot. I'm going to go back to Gilbert to ask you about the learning labs over time and how they might have changed, how they might have unfolded. And I'm particularly interested in this last year or so. We designed our lab in a way that people don't uh, get fed up. Uh, and people find meaning every time they connect. This is very different from a typical workshop. Two or three workshops over an issue in the city, you start having no people coming at all, or they come because there's some incentive. But to come for the sake of learning, for the sake of innovating together, and come without getting tired, that was a big thing that I I personally give credit to, to the lab process in the teaching process. So we we remained raising questions and issues that uh, were relevant to the people of of those cities and the people of Osaka, if I am to be particular. How did this happen? We listened and listened very carefully. And that's an important virtue in the labs, listening to to the voices that are not spoken uh, by people in the room. What are the things that we need to take on? And then the other way uh, that improved our lab um, over time was the introduction of, of some sort of, I don't know how to call it, but uh, where uh, maybe an urban planner like myself, an urbanist like myself, and then a climate scientist would sit on the table and have a conversation to try to delve into the depth of what climate science think and what the urban guys actually are thinking. And that continuously helped us to, you know, learn and unlearn certain things and innovate better during the labs. Then in the spice that whole process up, there was also a component on fieldwork. So that the learning in the lab actually is taken on site where things really happen. And that was an important addition. In terms of when the pandemic hit us and we had to slap some of the physical meetings that we are doing in the lab, uh, we had to innovate and see how we can do it. And for the start of on that, uh, we first of all started with a dialogue. So let's experiment if we are going to actually succeed. And we did the dialogue online. And I think many other cities uh, in Fractal actually did that. Smaller group, specific small question, uh, and with a small uh, number of people to dialogue and begin to innovate together uh, in that space. And we realized that it was actually working well. I participated in the Malawi setup 
and it was fantastic to see that the, the physical kind of processes actually went online, were implemented online, and they were very, very successful. Then it, the optimum of that is when we had our mega lab uh, towards uh, the end of specifically in April, uh, where now the learning in the cities had to be expanded beyond the reach of the city. Uh, we were doing that quite all right, but we had to uh, get cities physically meet in their own spaces in small numbers because of the pandemic. And then we cut across to learn from each other on virtual platforms. What I pick from there is, uh, first of all, it's the ability of the labs, especially if they're innovative, innovatively designed to happen online, the ability of the labs to connect across care, the ability of uh, the labs to inspire learning in very different spaces and the very different spaces affected differently by the pandemic. And that was very, very crucial. And then also the contribution, people have been talking, climate scientists traveling and making huge carbon you know, problems, you know, contributing a lot of carbon in the process of flying. And we innovated in a way that we're able to meet almost 100 people without a single person flying out. Uh, and that's a huge pass that the labs was able to, to achieve. And in this particular case, it's because of the way it was designed physically and also online, uh, allowing people to continue with the learning, allowing people to continue with the innovation and allowing for people to actually think very critically what it means going forward. Uh, as the world continues to be more disruptive, how do we actually get some of the climate, agent climate action implemented or done and dialogue in the cities without necessarily flying thousands of miles. Thanks, Gilbert. And I know that there were a lot of extra things to think about when designing the labs in the virtual space. It, it became more inclusive because it allowed people to join in for an hour or two and for people to join in from different cities into cities and other labs. It also perhaps in a way limited some people from joining because of access to data, access to good infrastructure. So all sorts of things needed to be juggled. And I know that the the teams and cities went above and beyond to try and create the spaces for people to be able to join the labs, to be able to provide the data and to be able to provide the infrastructure where possible. So these are, I guess, are aspects that constantly need to be juggled. So we've heard a lot about the mutual learning that takes place in the labs, the stakeholders involved, but I wanted to shift a bit to kind of the researcher perspective. This is obviously quite a different approach for several researchers who were involved in Fractal. For example, the climate scientists who, I guess, are not very used to doing this kind of work. They often sit behind their desks and they run models with data and produce projections or any other kind of climate information. So I've heard this phrase or I've heard a couple of researchers say to me that the learning labs enabled them as a researcher to ask better questions. And so this was really beneficial for them. And I was wondering, Sikena, if you can tell us a little bit more about what this means. What does it mean for researchers to be able to ask better questions based on these lab experiences? Because of the nature of the process of that design, which involved games, involved role plays, different ways that allowed people to step out of their home spaces, as Anna mentioned. The reason that was important is because these are the things that allowed sort of what a lot of times we've referred to as light bulb moments to occur. And we saw many examples for all of us, I would say, but particularly for climate scientists, where these aha moments basically happened 
during interactions and exercises that were designed to surface different priorities, different sort of preferences and values and basically the underlying driving forces of why and how decisions are being taken in the city. We often talk about this as tacit knowledge, some of that knowledge that's sort of unspoken or not explicitly articulated because that can be for many reasons. It can be because it's considered common knowledge or one expert may think someone else already knows this information. There's no need to articulate it. But often it's those kind of assumptions which are driving a decision and which sometimes are not surfaced, which is a huge loss when you're trying to do this kind of process. And so I think one of the major strengths of the learning labs and Fractal in general was that it was all about unearthing these light bulb moments and this tacit knowledge. And that it allowed us as researchers to then ask the better questions because we had a sort of furthered understanding of what the actual drivers were. And we may have started with kind of a shallow level question at the beginning of the project, but each iteration allowed us to go deeper and deeper and, you know, hopefully in, in more of the right direction because we were tapping into this tacit knowledge rather than just the surface knowledge. Yeah, maybe just to reflect that we really forced us to interrogate our own assumptions as researchers and that in itself led to new and more creative ways to, to even ask better questions. So one of the processes that the climate scientists in the project also took on was to sort of create a new process of distillation, what was called distillation in the project. And that in itself allowed a further interrogation of the climate information that was being presented in the project, but from a perspective of stakeholders in the city and city partners across the city were able to really interrogate climate scientists about the assumptions and the data they were using in the models that were being developed. So in Lusaka, for example, looking at the water energy system, rather than just presenting a hydrological model and the climate information integration in a sort of black box approach, there was really a deliberate and creative attempt to showcase exactly what data was being used what the assumptions were in that data and allowing the space for everybody in the room to question those assumptions and say, mm, you know, maybe that's not quite right. You know, the informal settlements may not grow at that rate over the next few years. We don't really know enough about water leakage and the, the situation with the water system, uh, water loss. Uh, we don't really know how much the amount of precipitation is going to change, you know, how much do we know that? What uncertainty is there in that information? And can you really say what you're saying with this model based on that information? Or this is the level of uncertainty in the model, and we're making these calculations, but with this level of uncertainty and just making that really, really clear for participants. And that led to a really nice dynamic, again, because the climate scientists were really willing to open up those assumptions and have a conversation and say, yeah, even between ourselves, there's no real agreement about which is the right assumption here. So um, I think that was also another example of how, you know, we never planned for that at the beginning of the project or even at the beginning of the Lusaka lab process, but it was something that was very emergent. Mm. Thank you. Yeah, I think that, the, the uh, as you say, sort of interrogating assumptions as researchers and this must have been quite hard for the climate scientists who are not used to this kind of work and also the other researchers who are involved. I think often we are not used to having 
um, academic work cracked open and exposed and for people to be able to comment on that and say it's not right outside of academia, but it's kind of foundational to this transdisciplinary approach and to, to be able to look at the scientific or the academic knowledge very sort of on the same level as the knowledge that other people in the room are offering. And so for everybody to be able to interrogate everybody else's understanding of the problem and their knowledge and their value of that knowledge to a deeper understanding of the problem and then thinking about responses as well. Exactly. And that really helped build the trust, I think. Yeah. So I'd like to circle back to Gilbert and think about, as we sort of move towards wrapping up the conversation, maybe think about some of the major takeaways from Fractal's Learning Lab approach in Lusaka, because this is where Gilbert has been working most consistently, but also more broadly um, as one of the sort of leaders in the transdisciplinary approach in Fractal, along with the other city PIs. What would you say, Gilbert, are the sort of major takeaways from this approach? Sure. Uh, I have about three or four. And the first one is building on what Skinner just said. Um, I think to succeed in this type of an approach to get the labs working and delivering on what they can potentially deliver, there is a, a lot to do with in, uh, trust. Uh, the elements of uh, empowering, disempowering, choosing to engage, not to engage, choosing to share information, choosing to innovate together, it's all about having some level of trust and confidence that uh, people are in the, in the safe space and they may not be abused and also they may not be squatted and so on and so forth. So trust is very, very crucial uh, as we design uh, labs in any space. And that needs to be something to be constantly reflected upon uh, from beginning all the way to the end of the cycle. The second uh, issue that I pick from Saka is breaking institutional barriers and allowing creating opportunities for people to and the institutions were ready to work together in the most genuine way. And, and I keep using the word genuine because in our statutes and in many parts of, of the world, including Zambia, it's a legal requirement to work together and to allow communities to participate and get things done in a collaborative way in some form. But most of it is done for the sake of fulfilling those statutes and not the genuine way to get things fixed. And so to move from that legal mindset, Practically, what does this really mean on the ground? Uh, that takes time. Uh, people are comfortable, people are not ready to lose their authority, people are not, you know, not to lose, but to learn something different or to let go of certain things that they may not even have full confidence on. That takes time. And the, the, what Fractal did in Saka is it, it took people and institutions in, in some sort of, on some sort of a journey together. Uh, until where we are now, where it can be extremely easy to actually connect, uh, to actually, you know, even think of having a declaration that this is what we think as a city, this is what is going to guide us as a city. And we are committed to the regional declaration, we are committed to what Southern Africa is thinking. That is a process and that is a journey. Uh, and it speaks to the issue of climate and climate change. It's an immediate, it's a medium term, and it's a long term issue. And so labs also need to be structured in, in such a way that people are going to change sort of slowly, and we need to begin with the familiar things that people can connect quite easily. Then uh, the other point I, I want to reflect on is the complexity of cities and the complexity of the climate challenge we face 
requires an approach that deploys various tools and processes. And what we learned is the success of the labs in Lusaka and in the region is that because we're able to tap uh, experiences and power from different methods and approaches, like the learning lab were an integral part of the success of the lab, of, of the embedded researchers, the embedded researchers were an integral part of the success of, 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 of the learning labs. They, they were there as an important voice, as an important link between what communities were saying and what universities were talking about, they were sort of in between. And so drawing from all those threads allows for collaborative and genuine working together. Then the last part, uh, which I want to reflect on is, is the importance of stakeholders to be humble in their fields. Uh, in fact, we call it the humble climate science, but it's important that the other sciences are also humble so that the third space or the shared space where everyone is to let go of their comfort actually is truly shared. And that to me is a space where empowerment happens and empowerment happens differently, where a climate scientist can speak with confidence to and with a water expert, a water engineer. And that's where the solution is going to be found. And so as we think and innovate thinking going forward, there is need for science to reflect on its own methodologies, its own questions, and for science actually to learn from what actually happened in the community. And this is what uh, our labs were able to do. And this is what Sukena was reflecting on to begin to interrogate further our own methods and our own science and what that really means in terms of uh, making our science relevant to the people that are afflicted and affected by various challenges driven by climate and climate pressures. And so um, as I end, when the coronavirus hit us, I was personally thinking, what would this mean? Would I still be able to get interest from people to connect on a climate? And shockingly, uh, there was no one who said there's a pandemic, so this is where the energy is going to focus entirely. Despite like a specific like Lusaka City Council, they're like in the mix of it and they need to get things done, but they still found time to discuss and commit as ever to the question on climate change. And that's what that means that cities recognize the agents and the importance of climate change. And I think they realize, for, for example, in Lusaka, they realize clearly that um, pandemics and disruptions currently and in the future will even become worse if we don't address the climate change question. Water is an integral part of the cycle. And we cannot win the battle against COVID-19 if we don't address water issues. And now if droughts and floods continue to ravage the city and we have future pandemics, what does that mean? So climate, to me, the pandemic is a layer on top of a complex uh, climate question. Thank you so much. Thanks, Gilbert. And I'm glad you brought in the pandemic because it is a reality that we currently face with that, as you said, adds extra layer of complexity. So I have one last question, and I'm, I'm wondering if I can pose it to all three of you, and you can share some final thoughts about perhaps if there was, and again, this is a forward-looking question. We've been thinking about the last few questions have been looking forward and taking this approach forward. But if there was a particular challenge that you experienced in the labs that you would like to try and overcome in the future if you applied a similar approach 
in another project, in a municipality, in whatever space. And then also, if you just want to add a couple of words to give your final thoughts about the learning lab process. Sure. Yeah, I mean, maybe just to, to sum up, I think sustaining the energy, making sure there's a diversity of stakeholders involved and enrolling the people who otherwise might not be the most sort of forthcoming to join these kind of collaborative processes remains a challenge. And then, yeah, really surfacing, making legible, making apparent to people these benefits of investing the time and energy in these processes. And as Sukana mentioned, I mean, many of them are intangible. Some of them you can point to, you know, as we said, it's a it's a plan that's got a slightly reframed problem statement or a slightly wider variety of interventions because of the collaboration that's gone into thinking through them. So sometimes they're quite tangible outputs, but a lot of them are these more subtle shifts in thinking, maybe slightly broadened um, mandates that people are willing to take on than they might have previously these subtle shifts in power dynamics or new relationships that are formed between different units and organizations and sectors because of their involvement in this quite sort of intense experiential learning lab process. So trying our best to articulate what those values are to, um, yeah, to enroll more people and to sustain the processes, I think, is key to their success. Thanks, Anna. I wonder if I can ask the same of you, Sikena. Yeah, thanks, Alice. Um, just building on, I very much support what Anna said about trying to engage and create sort of awareness about the value of the processes and involve more participants, a wider range of actors across the science society interface. And I would also, and trying to track these tangible and intangible benefits and I think one of the challenges I would add to that is doing the same for the donor community because I think the challenge that we face as a community is trying to repeat this process again or take the learning from this process forward into another context and Fractal afforded us many opportunities to do this because we had brilliant teams in the cities. We had these amazing champions, amazing embedded researchers. But I think we did that in spite of a lack of time and limited funding. And would we ever be so lucky to have the same opportunity again? I think these things go hand in hand. The necessity for us as a team to be able to show and trace these benefits is as important for us and the partners and stakeholders as it is for the donors so that we can ensure future research programs allow for this kind of science practice uh, interface activities and the innovation that's the time that's required and the resources that are required for this kind of innovation to happen. I think it's just really underestimated. So we think have our work cut out in trying to make these benefits clear and, and the impact clear from this kind of project. And it's really important for that reason. Thanks, Akena. How about you, Gilbert? All right. Um, we have a, a few points, and uh, I want to build on what Kena said, and maybe just a word on top of that is communicating in the language that people who are completely not familiar with these processes will understand. Um, uh, that is that is very very crucial, and I know we've done a great job on communicating as Fractal. 
but there are several ways that we could innovate to communicate to a layman's person. So this language that we speak, it can also be spoken by an old person somewhere uh, sitting either in an office or a young person somewhere on the street. Uh, then we begin to create street value for this. Then the other challenge uh, that I might, that I've struggled with is uh, the bureaucracy of institutions. I think when we start with these processes, we overlay them on institutions that are not prepared to undertake this type of methodological processes. And the institutions are not prepared, really. They are, they are sort of designed for a different methodology, research methodology. And so universities across the region, as CPPIs, this is one of the things we've grappled with, the biggest challenge ever, perhaps in my entire academic life, was dealing with the university bureaucrats for them to understand what they ask every question. What is the lab? What is the dialogue? How does this become a science? All that type of questions. And so I think when a project starts, it's important to get a few bureaucrats through the project methodologies and processes. That way it becomes a bit most uh, in the in, 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 during implementation. The second issue to reflect on and take on is the pressure, the extra work that is created using these methodologies, and then the pressure that is created for people. Anna talked of champions. Yeah, champions really got a hell of, of pressure. And over time, it may not be sustainable. So that builds on the point of sharing the values of this process, the value of this process and getting people in universities and also in the, in the, in the, in the policy spaces to appreciate so that in a university can have champions, not one or two champions, but many champions. And cities can also begin to have, in different departments, begin to have champions. In short, begin to change the way key drivers in those departments and units actually think and undertake their business. Um, by having a champion in almost every space in the process. And that begins to challenge the science itself, the very basic meaning of what science is and what people know as science is in many universities. So that is a process and that can take a lot of, will take a lot of time, but I think it's an important issue to engage with. At the same time, there's a challenge also how to build teams. We have, we have all the stakeholders, but building uh, teams in specific spaces that drive these processes is also a challenge that uh, that I've grappled with uh, all the time. Suffice to say, the greatest enemy is bureaucracy in universities. Universities are too rigid for alternative thinking. Many universities, not all of them, many universities are too rigid and too much in the past. And we do hope a project like this will begin to change their thinking. Thanks. I think that's about all we have time for today. So Gilbert, Sakena, Anna, my colleagues, and more importantly, my friends, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. It's been really interesting to talk to you and to discuss your experiences of the Learning Lab process. And for our listeners, if you're interested in finding out more about transdisciplinary work under Fractal and the Learning Lab process in particular, then head over to the show notes where we posted some useful links for you. So thanks for listening. We look forward to having you along with us next time where we'll be chatting with the fractal embedded researchers who we've heard a lot about today. I'm sure you're dying to hear from them. And they were an integral part of the project success. So thanks everybody, goodbye. The Startcast is produced by Start International. 
you would like more information about START, please visit www.start.org. To give feedback on this episode, or if you have a question for START or today's guest, please email us at startcast at start.org.